A Canadian mother, Martina Phillips, has a wayward son. She hasn't seen her her boy for four long years now. And recently, she posted a dozen questions. How does a parent deal with the rebellion of a child? How does a parent keep from giving up hope? How does a parent not envy other people's kids? Why does free will have to take us so far from God? Why don't happy parents ask about unhappy ones? Why do children see loving parents as their enemy? Where is all this chaos going? Where can a parent find comfort? Where does a parent learn to understand their pain? What does a parent do to dispel their fears? What can I say? What can I do? You read Martina's questions and it brings the tears to your eye. She knows the rejection of the deepest sort. Nothing is tougher to cope with than the rejection of a child. I mean, a mom, she births her baby and she nurses him and she wipes his bottom and diapers him. And she does it all so endlessly, yet joyfully, at least most of the time joyfully. She falls in love with another human in a way she could have never fathomed. She kisses his boo-boos and cooks a thousand meals and helps him with his homework and carts him to soccer practice and she buys him clothes and hymns and pants and pays his car insurance and picks out a corsage for his prom date. And none of this prepares her for the heart-rending moment when he rejects her overtures of love and turns his back on their relationship. A mom wonders what she did wrong. Why is she being rejected by her own flesh and blood and all she's done for him is love him? A mother tries to make sense out of his senseless behavior. How can he reject pure, unselfish love? And yet many children do. And it pains their parents. The worst pain is always your own pain. And I would never pretend to understand Martina's broken heart or yours for that matter. But I know someone who does. For Jesus has tasted this same sort of rejection. When Jesus was born, He was kissed by angels. He was cradled by a mother's loving arms. But when He died, He was spit upon and cursed and physically abused. Oriental magi, they recognized His royalty. They bowed at His feet to worship. While the men who conspired to arrest him and try him, they condemned him as a common criminal. And just as we do when it happens to us, we wonder why. It's easier when the rejection was caused by something we did or something we said, then we can fix it. That's easier to deal with than the reality of not knowing, not understanding. Certainly after two millenniums of reflection, we see a little clearer the forces and factors that led to Jesus' crucifixion. Politics and power certainly played a role. But at the time, I'm sure his rejection seemed as senseless and as hurtful as the pain felt by the mother of a wayward son. The Apostle John, he was there. 
His relationship with Jesus was especially close. And John felt the sting of his friend's hurt. He saw how Jesus agonized over his rejection. Later, when John wrote of these amazing years he experienced with Jesus, he characterized his Lord's life with these words, He came to his own and his own did not receive him. How's that for a hurtful, painful summation? Rejected by your own? In the month of March, we're going to retrace the steps of Jesus during his final stretch of his earthly ministry. You know, for centuries, the church has referred to these seven days from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday as Passion Week. We think of the places and the events of that week. From his grand arrival in Jerusalem, before that crowd that paved the path with a tribute of palm branches, to the drama played out in the Garden of Gethsemane with Judas's kiss and with Peter's sword to the sham trials that occurred at Caiaphas' house and later at Gabbatha or Pilate's judgment hall, to Golgotha or Skull Hill, where the beating and torture began by Pilate culminated on the cross, to the garden tomb where the body of Jesus was buried and guarded, yet three days rose in victory. Even 40 days later, to His ascension to glory. It's a story of triumph. But it's also colored by deep and painful rejection. You see, far more important than the places and the personalities, this week is all about passion. It's a week of wonders, but it's also a week of weeping. You know, in sports, we admire the player who leaves it all out on the field. An athlete might be limited in terms of talent or size, but he makes up for it in heart. He plays the game with passion. And Jesus, too, lived his life with passion. We think of his back and the lashes, but think of his heart. It was torn and it was scourged long before the whip struck his back. The prophet Isaiah, peering 700 years down the halls of history, was correct when he spoke of the coming of Messiah. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from Him. He was despised, and we did not esteem Him. You see, Jesus understands our rejection. Our Lord, He is the beauty of holiness. The prophet Haggai called Him the desire of all nations. I mean, Jesus is the King of kings who will be adored and loved after this world vanishes and a new world comes. And yet for a week, for this week, He made Himself vulnerable to all the rejection that every human has ever tasted. He gulped down the pain you might be feeling right now. Today, Jesus knows something about the hurt of a broken human heart. And yet this final week of wonders didn't start out with rejection. Oh no! In fact, by its beginning, you would have never dreamed of how it ended. Jesus' week of weeping starts with a parade. With an inaugural parade, what occurred on the Sunday before the cross was the only public demonstration that Jesus ever orchestrated. He made an official entrance into God's holy city. A few years ago, I traveled to Germany to teach at the Calvary Chapel Bible College. And on our way home, my son Nick and I, we had a layover in London. 
We were there for just one day, but we made the most of it. It was a memorable day. It just so happened that one day we had in London coincided with an official visit from the president of South Korea. And our timing was impeccable. We were strolling right there along the mall next to Buckingham Palace when suddenly the place was swarming with with SWAT team types clearing the streets. Then we saw the red uniforms and the bearskin hats. Suddenly a band struck up some music. Nick and I just happened to look up just in time to see the queen bee herself in a horse-drawn carriage clip-clopping down the path. Her entourage traveled a mile from the palace to the horse guard parades grounds. A formal welcome was extended to the South Korean dignitaries. Then the delegation climbed back in their Cinderella carriages and returned to Buckingham Palace with the Koreans. And there on the street corner, two dumbfounded Americans stood watching with dropped jaws, amazed that they had stumbled across a royal event. I'm sure that the Koreans' official visit had been planned for months, if not for years. But the Adams boys, they were fortunate enough to be at the right place at the right time. And I'm sure that's what happened to some of Jerusalem's visitors in town for Passover, 32 A.D. You see, normally the population of Jerusalem was all about 80,000 people. But during Passover, the city was swamped with pilgrims. The population would swell to a quarter million people. And the visitors from Galilee and from the Decapolis and from the Jordan Valley, they had all seen and heard of Jesus. They knew Him. This was the perfect moment for Jesus to make a point. The procession down the Mount of Olives had been planned for 550 years in advance. For you see, the prophet Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, he made a bold prediction. He had predicted that from the Persian king's decree to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem to the coming of Messiah, there would be 483 years. What a daring prophecy to pick the very day that Jesus would come to Jerusalem. Well, King Artaxerxes' decree was issued on March the 14th, 445 B.C. And if you count off 483 years or 173,880 days, and I suggest you wait till later, don't try it right now. But if you count off all of those days, it brings you up to April the 6th, 32 A.D., this particular Sunday. The Passover pilgrims in Jerusalem that day, they may have been as naive about the timing of the event as the two dumb Americans were when the queen was seen, but Jesus knew exactly what was happening and why. He had prepared for this day. Remember earlier in the same day, Jesus had sent two disciples to the Jerusalem suburbs to fetch him some suitable transportation. In Mark chapter 11, verses 2 and 3, Jesus told them, You will find a colt tied on which no one has set. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? What do you mean if? Of course somebody's going to ask, Why are you doing this? This would be like me telling you to go up to the Red Lobster parking lot and find a car with a key still in the ignition, take the car and drive it back to me. And if anyone says anything to you, well, you bet they will. For one, the Gwinnett cops will have plenty to say to you. A couple of weeks ago, my wife met me at Red Lobster 
she had our grandson with her, and I suppose Kathy was so preoccupied with Colton that when she jumped out of the car to unbuckle him, she forgot to shut off the car. So for an hour, over an hour, while we were inside eating, the car stayed purring in the Red Lobster parking lot. And yes, my wife is blonde. And not here this morning. Isn't that good? But what if Jesus told you, go to the Red Lobster parking lot and you'll find a colt or a colton in a car that's already running. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Just say, the Lord has need of it. Oh, you come out, somebody's taking your car away. They say, well, the Lord has need of it. Oh, that's cool. That's fine. That would be a miracle. Hey, one truth we learn from this week of wonders is that when God has a plan, He takes care of the details. Actually, several miracles occurred this Sunday. Jesus' mode of transportation was predicted 500 years previously also. In Zechariah 9, verse 9, we're told, Behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey. As Jesus descends the slope of Olivet, Even the cheers of the crowd were lifted from Scripture. Psalm 118, Hosanna, or save us to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You see, for three and a half years now, Jesus has been canvassing. He's been crisscrossing the countryside of Galilee, and he's traveled the deserts and hills of Judea, and he's been teaching in the porticos of the temple. He's opened blind eyes. He's made deaf ears hear. He's conjured wine at weddings. And he's fed 5,000 with two loaves and five fish. He's demonstrated his power over nature and over demons and over sickness and even over death. He taught the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And folks believed him for he brought heaven to earth. And now as Jesus rides this borrowed burrow down the hill and through the gate, a huge roar goes up. Thousands of visitors, they lay out palm fronds across the road and they pave it with the cloaks off their own back. It was the Jewish equivalent of rolling out the red carpet. Even the tune the multitude sang was a messianic psalm. It was spoken of the king's presentation to the nation. It was Luke who dropped the first hint of rejection. He writes in Luke chapter 19, verse 39, Some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. In the midst of the celebration, the doubters spoke up. They questioned the claim that Jesus was the Messiah, and they expected him to share their view. You get the sense that Jesus anticipated this rejection, for he answers them so boldly. He says, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. In other words, the Messiah is here, and if humanity doesn't sing his praise, then nature will. I kind of wish that the crowd had been silent that day. We would have heard some real rock music. And recall what happens next. The Jesus that the Jerusalem crowd identified as Messiah, he acts like one. Jesus enters the temple, his temple, his father's house. And we start to see further ripples of rejection. 
After Jesus' triumphant entrance, the next few days will weed out the nation's true intentions. You see, it's one thing for folks to identify and greet and even praise a king, but what's their attitude when he starts to act like the role, when he starts to play the part and act kingly? Following his entry, Jesus proceeded into the temple. He walked in as if he owned the place, for he did. He shouted, is it not written, my house is a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. His message was shape up or ship out. Imagine Jesus barging through the temple doors to confront these crooked priests. They were exchanging coins at a markup so folks could tithe their their preferred currency. They were selling rabbi-sanctioned sacrifices at exorbitant prices. It was all a scam. They were making a buck off God. And like Jack Bauer busting up a terrorist cell, or John Wayne in a shootout, Jesus took on the whole corrupt Jewish establishment. He barreled into the temple. He turned over tables. He ran out the money changers. You know, when I first came to Jesus, it was sort of like a Palm Sunday. Jesus rode into my life to the cheers of my heart. It was a gentle, peaceful breakthrough. It was like a housewarming. I mean, Jesus thawed out my frozen heart. His love melted me. I finally had found rest. But you know, my life was still dirty. It was still corrupt. And it was far from the kind of place that Jesus would want to call home. And so he took to cleaning house. And he started turning over some tables in my life and upsetting some apple carts, just like he did that day in the temple. Mark chapter 11 verse 18 tells us that after Jesus upset their apple cart, the scribes and the chief priests, they sought how they might destroy him. All of a sudden, he was now a threat to their authority. And just as there were temple stockholders who didn't like their business being threatened, there are people today who bristle up when Jesus acts like who we claim him to be. Oh, we like Jesus as long as he stays within the narrow boundaries we've established for him and doesn't go any of the places where we haven't invited him. But when he takes his own initiative, when he comes in and starts overturning tables, oh, that's a different story. We're a lot like the Jews. We'll adhere to His will only as long as it harmonizes with our own. It's one thing to praise Jesus on the Mount of Olives or even in church. It's quite another to give Him the run of your heart. Let Him transform your life. Let Him arrange things according to His likings. As Jesus left Jerusalem that evening, He saw a fig tree. He was hoping for some fruit. All it had though was leaves. The fig tree was figless. Go figure. What a letdown. Jesus is hungry. He curses the fig tree because of its barrenness. The next morning on his return trip to Jerusalem, he walks right past that same fig tree. Overnight, the tree had withered. It had shriveled up. And the disciples recognized it as a miracle. Jesus, though, pointed it out as a symbol. For in that same way, the future of the nation was about to experience an overnight change. The day before, crowds had embraced Jesus. They had held Him their Messiah. But on this day, seeds of rejection will be sown. A brewing bitterness will choke out all faith. 
It starts again in the temple. It's Monday now. And Mondays are tough. They were in first century A.D. They are today. It's been said Mondays are when you think of the good old days, Saturday and Sunday. This Monday particularly was a tough day. It was the day that the Israeli officials inspected their flocks and they chose a lamb that would be sacrificed for the nation on Passover. On that same day, the Jewish officials began their inspection of Jesus. Matthew 22 and Luke 20 recount the loaded questions that the brightest minds in Judaism hurled at Jesus that day. He had to tiptoe around the landmines. All their sly and tricky scenarios were designed to trip up Jesus so they could accuse Him of bigger crimes. Oh, is it lawful for you to pay taxes to Caesar? A woman marries seven men. Whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Which of the 613 commandments is the greatest Jesus? If Messiah is David's son, how can He also be His Lord? Jesus gets four big fat pitches and He knocks each one of them out of the park. And at the end of the sparring match, I love what Matthew says about it. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone question him. They all discovered that arguing scripture with its author is a futile task. When you match wits with God, you end up the dimwit. Sadly though, by this point, the die has been cast. It's now obvious that Israel's leaders or national leaders are looking for reasons to reject Jesus rather than reasons to believe. And you know, there's a lot of people just like that today. Jesus is a threat to their lifestyle. His authority challenges their independence. His righteousness exposes their corruption. His truth unnerves them. And rather than open their lives to Him, they look to assert their own autonomy. They do things their own way and push back. You see, the Jews had asked Jesus four questions, but Jesus really only had one question for the Jews. Why? Why resist my will when all my intentions for you are good? Why the rejection? Later that day, Jesus left Jerusalem. He was overcome with emotion. As He climbed to the top of the Mount of Olives, to the suburb where He was staying, He couldn't escape the view. It is a spectacular view. It was then, and it still is today. It's the most stunning view in all of Israel. From the top of the Mount of Olives, you look out over the panoramic landscape. You see this picture of the holy city before you. Instead of the gold dome, Jesus would have looked out and seen the temple. A symbol of God's people. God's footstool on earth. And it was here that big tears began to swell up in Jesus' eyes. The events of that Monday had proven that Israel's leaders had rejected him. It was now a foregone conclusion. And from the top of the Mount of Olives, Jesus utters one of the most heart-wrenching cries in all of the Bible, perhaps in all of history. Matthew 23, verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. Don't tell me Jesus doesn't know something about the anguish of a broken heart. This past week I read a story that I thought was quite amazing. Twelve hours after baby Moses Goodrich entered this world, his 46-year-old mother Susan exited. 
the Michigan mom died of a rare amniotic fluid embolism. Her widower, Robbie, was left with the task of caring for little Moses. And since it was Susan's desire to breastfeed her baby, Robbie lacked what little Moses needed most, and that was milk. There was no one to nurse. That's when something really wonderful happened. Young moms from all over Marquette, some who knew Susan, some who didn't, they heard of the dilemma, and they stepped up to volunteer to help breastfeed Moses. For over a year, more than 20 mothers agreed to an elaborate schedule to make sure that little Moses was always fed. I mean, what a testimony to the power of the maternal instinct to want to care for a baby even when it's not your own child. And this is Jesus' passion for every wayward child. He longs for the lost ones. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Over generations past, Jesus in his pre-incarnate state, he kept leaning over heaven's rail, agonizing over his rebellious children Israel, wanting them to turn back to him like a mother hen in the barnyard scurrying about to protect her chicks. Jesus hoped to gather and provide for his nation, for his people, Israel. Jesus has more maternal estrogen than 20 wet nurses. And all that stopped him from gathering up Israel was four tragic words. You were not willing. It's interesting, no other rationale is given. You know, sometimes rejection isn't as complicated as we think. Or else the perceived reasons don't really matter. They're all just excuses. Understand, their pain could have been ended if they had just been willing. Some of you here today, your pain could be over if you're willing. From Sunday to Thursday, Jesus was reminded that not everyone on his bandwagon was really part of the band. Not everyone who had joined his praise was willing to submit to his rule. Not all his friends were truly friends. Hal Nadvichek, he learned this same lesson. When he opened his new Facebook account, he was proud of the fact that he quickly accumulated over 700 friends. But Hal was lonely, and he hoped to translate some of his virtual friends into actual real-life buddies. And so he decided to have a party for all of his Facebook friends. He sent out invitations for everyone to meet at the local pub. Of the 700 invitations, 15 said that they would definitely come. 60 said they might come. Hal was counting on 20. Imagine his disappointment when only one person showed up, and she wasn't even his friend. She was a friend of a friend who'd heard about the get-together. She stayed for a few minutes and chit-chatted and then left. And there he was. Hal, the man with 700 friends, drinking all by himself. Everyone likes a parade, a party. And as long as folks are part of the celebration, they'll be friends with Jesus. But not everyone likes Jesus in their temple, turning over tables, expecting life to be done His way. Sadly, Jesus is still despised and rejected by men. And you will be too if you choose to follow Jesus. 
be his voice in this world, and folks will try to silence you. We still live in the same locale that rejected Jesus. Recently, I was with a friend who admitted to me that he's just weary of the stigma that people attach to Christianity. He told me, he said, the Bible teaches that God literally created the earth in six days. It teaches that homosexuality is a sin, that miracles actually happen. And I believe it's all true. I'm just tired of being laughed at for my beliefs. People think I'm a buffoon for believing what I do. Christianity is true, but it is seldom popular. Following Jesus will never be in vogue. Surrendering your life to the will of another is rarely seen as the cool move. God's wisdom remains foolishness to sinful men. And we should wear this world's scorn as a badge of honor. In 1 Corinthians 4 verse 10, Paul boasts, We are fools for Christ's sake. Are you willing to be a fool for Christ's sake? Paul considered it a privilege to be so linked to Jesus that he was rejected for Jesus' sake. Our Lord knows what it's like to be mocked and laughed at and plotted against behind closed doors. After his showdowns in the temple, Matthew 26 tells us that the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the Jews, they all assembled at the palace of the high priest. And I quote, they plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. Tragically, the leaders of the nation, the nation that he had come to save, rejected him. His crucifixion is now imminent. His departure from this world is near. His time is at hand. And so Jesus chooses to spend his final night with his closest friends. And it was a night they'd never forget. In Matthew 26, Jesus prepares to eat the Passover. And again, he gives some cryptic instructions. Jesus tells a couple of his disciples, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. It's not like he's giving you much of a choice, is it? This is the teacher talking. Again, the city is packed. It's one of those no vacancy weeks. You make Passover preparations far in advance or you don't make them at all. But Jesus had supernatural connections. And there was a banquet room awaiting him. Luke even adds the description, a large furnished upper room. It was there the disciples prepped for the meal. Luke 22 stresses that it was Jesus' fervent desire to celebrate this final Passover with his 12 disciples. I think when the world rebuffs us, it's nice to recall who our friends are. In the midst of our rejection, sometimes we forget. Sometimes we get buried by the abandonment of one person without taking comfort in the other friendships that surround us. It was vital for Jesus to spend this time with his friends. He will convey to them this night some important truths. You know, people respond to, direct, to rejection in different ways. Some people, they give up and they retreat into a cocoon of isolation so that they'll never get hurt again. Other folks, they drown their feelings of rejection with drugs or with alcohol or with other destructive behaviors. Still other people, they get angry and they lash out at the source of their rejection. Jesus does none of the above. I want you to listen carefully 
to John 13, verse 1. And I want you to try to identify with me his coping mechanism. John 13, verse 1 tells us, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were, with him, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And there it is, those last six words. Pay attention. Here's how Jesus overcame rejection. He loved them to the end. Certainly there's a healthy way to love, and there's a love that's self-destructive. But the answer to your rejection, my friend, is not isolation or self-medication or anger or resentment. Jesus kept on loving the folks who rejected him. Someone once told me, the only way to wipe out your enemies is by turning them into friends. And it's true. And this should be the Christian's response to rejection. You can't make someone accept you or respect you or love you. But you can release that person to Jesus. And in your heart of hearts, you can choose to love them with His love. Here's why I call this last week a week of wonders. It's not just because it's chock full of miracles. God does work miracles, but not where we would expect to find them. I mean, why doesn't the ground open up and swallow the Jews who come to arrest Jesus? Where are the angels who are supposed to ride to his rescue and deliver him from the scourging? Why don't the nails that are about to be driven into Jesus' hands and feet melt like wax? I mean, those are the wonders that I would have included if I were writing the story. But here is the real miracle. He loved them to the end. Even on the cross, he cried, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Maybe a friend wasn't there when you needed her. Or a child betrayed you. Or a parent neglected you. Or your spouse walked out. Or a co-worker let you down. Have you stopped loving them? Or are you determined to be like Jesus? Hey, when you harbor a grudge, it only eats away at you. You're the one destroyed by your own bitterness. But when you choose God's love, it heals and it forgives. And it unlocks the door of the prison you've created for you. Whenever I feel hurt or rejection, I force myself. It's not my first instinct. I have to force myself to remember that there is no healing in withdrawing or in drowning or in lashing out. Oh no. The healing is in the loving. This is what Jesus does that night in the loft. He loves the same disciples who are about to abandon him. I mean, by morning light, not only the crowds who met him on the Mount of Olives, but his own disciples will reject him. He breaks bread, and he tells them with such love, this is my body given for you. He sips the wine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. This is all a foreshadowing of the cross to come. Jesus hurts. He's being rejected. But to Jesus, it's all about his love for them, not their lack of love for him. His body will be broken. His blood will be spilt for them. And then Jesus, he dips his bread in the same sauce as Judas. And by doing so, identifies his betrayer. Jesus even loved Judas to the end. 
He resisted to condemn him as a traitor at that moment. Rather, he sends him out to do his dastardly deed. Imagine this. Jesus even loved Judas. That night, Peter boasts, everybody might forsake you, Jesus, but not me, not ever. And yet Jesus then tells Peter that Satan has asked for him to sift him. Peter will deny his Lord three times before the rooster crows twice. In Luke 22, verse 32, Jesus extends hope to even Peter. He promises his doomed disciple, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. How hopeful is that? Even when a disciple acts cowardly, Jesus continues to love them. Later that night, he spoke about heaven. He was going to prepare a place for them. In his stead, Jesus will send another helper of the very same sort. The Holy Spirit will pick up where Jesus leaves off. Jesus knows that dark hours are ahead for his disciples, so he ensures them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In John 17, for a whole chapter, Jesus prays for an unbroken unity among all believers, both then and now. And as his disciples show their complete folly by arguing over who's the greatest among them, Jesus performs the wonder of all wonders. With a bowl and with a towel, Jesus changes the world. Jesus takes on the task of the lowliest servant, He washes the Jerusalem dirt off his disciples' feet and he proves even over Peter's protest that the greatest is the servant of all. One man writes, Until this moment, the whole point of things was for someone to get on top and once on top to stay on top or else attempt to get further up. But this man, already on top, rabbi, teacher, master, God himself, got down on the bottom and began to wash the feet of his followers. In this one act, Jesus symbolically overturned the whole social order. And he taught you and I a new way to live. You and I can't imagine these ramifications. The hands that created the universe now have shriveled fingertips. That night, Jesus left his, commandment, his disciples with a new commandment. He says, now you love one another even as I've loved you. By this time it was getting late. Jesus and the twelve disciples, they opened the doors of the upper room and they walked out into a crisp, cool Jerusalem night. They strolled through its empty streets. They passed by the colossal temple. They crossed over the brook called Kidron. And there on the western slope of the Mount of Olives, they entered a garden that they had visited before. It was used to grow and to crush olives The locals called it Gethsemane, or the Garden of the Oil Press. Well, the first leg of Jesus' amazing race is now over. The week of wonders has begun, but not as we might have thought. What starts with high hopes ends with rejection. Jesus knows what it's like to be heartbroken. Yet He continues to overturn tables even today. He knows His true friends. He loves people to the end, even those who reject Him. And He commands you and me to do likewise. And if you know someone who's lost today, 
and needs to find refuge under the shelter of his wings, then I encourage you to keep praying for that person. For all the Lord is looking to see is one inkling of willingness. And he will rush to their rescue. 